Well, again, it's good to be back with you uh, this morning, and it's, uh, it's such a privilege to be able to, uh, to preach and to open God's Word together, too. Um, we came in a few days ago and, uh, as a family, and we've been able to kind of connect with uh, a few folks here in the church and heard about the current sermon series uh, that you're doing here that Pete's leading you through, so I figured I'd have you open a Song of Songs today. We'll just, we'll just read the whole book. <laughs> it won't be awkward at all, right? Um, Sorry, I had, you can tell my bad sense of humor still exists. Uh, Luke chapter 19, we'll go with that instead. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and that's on page 1,630 of the Bibles in the pews, if you're following along there. And this is um, it's a famous story. It's, it's one probably many of us uh, have grown up hearing as kids or in Sunday school, um, but we're going to take a look at it together uh, today as well. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and this is what... Uh, The Gospel writer Luke writes for Christian believers back then as well as for us as believers today. He writes, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, um, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree in order to see him because Jesus was coming that way. When he reached that spot, Jesus stopped and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give away half of my possessions. And if I have uh, cheated anybody out of anything, I pay back, I will pay back four times the amount. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, uh, when I was younger, um, long before I met Sarah, thankfully, um, I was pretty immature when it came to dating. I'm kind of ashamed to admit this now, but I was sort of a a serial dater. I would become interested in a girl, pursue her, start a relationship, but then quickly lose interest, and it wouldn't be long before I would initiate a breakup uh, and then move on to pursue someone else instead. And this was a pattern that repeated itself over and over for me in both high school and the first few years of college. Uh, For instance, I remember one relationship I had like that my freshman year of college. It was uh, towards the start of my first uh, semester at Calvin, I knew it as college, now university. Uh, And I met this girl I was pretty interested in. We'll call her Michelle. Uh, Michelle and I hit it off uh, right right from the get-go. We ran in similar friend circles. We got to know each other. We started hanging out a lot. We realized we had a lot of similar interests and a lot of fun together. And so I spent weeks pursuing her. We we hung out together, both in groups and also one-on-one. We talked on the phone, which used to be a thing. Um, and I repeatedly asked her out. Dating her seemed like all I could think about. Well, finally, she said yes, and I was over the moon. We started dating, and it was great for about three weeks. And then, like had happened so many other times before uh, for me, I suddenly lost interest in the relationship. We dated for a few more weeks while I tried to figure out why that was and why my feelings had changed. But after only a few months together, uh, we ended up breaking up, and it wasn't long before I was pursuing someone else. Have you ever had something like that? 
maybe it wasn't a, a relationship or someone that you were pursuing, but, but something that you wanted, something you felt you needed to have, something that you desired and pursued only to find that once you got it, it didn't satisfy. I would assume most of us have had uh, something like that at one point or another in our lives. Maybe uh, like it was for me, it was a relationship, it was another person. Maybe it was a job or a promotion, though. Or maybe it was something more tangible, like a new house, a car, or, or some other possession. We all have that, though, right? Things that we yearn for, things we want, things we desire, only to find out that once we finally get them, it's not really what we wanted. It doesn't really satisfy. That's actually what we see going on here in our text for this morning, here in Luke chapter 19, because that's actually what we see going on in this tax collector that Jesus meets here, Zacchaeus. But simply, Zacchaeus wants something. He feels he needs it. He desires it. The only problem is that once he finally has it, he realizes that it doesn't satisfy him the way that he thought it would. And instead, what he really desires is something, or maybe more accurately, someone else. You see, Zacchaeus' initial desire was for money. This text doesn't come right out and say that, but it's pretty clear from the way that Luke uh, describes Zacchaeus that that's what's going on for him. Now, uh, truth be told, Sunday school songs aside, we don't actually know that much about Zacchaeus. Luke is the only gospel writer who mentions him, and even what he says about him here uh, isn't all that much. He doesn't give us very much to go on. And yet, despite his brevity, Luke does tell us at least two important details about Zacchaeus. First, he tells us that he was a chief tax collector, and second, he tells us that he was wealthy. And while on the surface those two things might not tell us all that much, once you peel back the historical and cultural layers uh, we realize that there's a lot more to Zacchaeus than we initially see in this text. It becomes apparent that at least before he met Zac uh, Jesus, Zacchaeus was more or less obsessed with making money. You see, that's the reason that you would become a tax collector back then. Truth be told, there are actually very few benefits to being a tax collector in first century Jewish society. Uh, that's because in that time and culture, being a Jewish tax collector meant that you were a sellout to the Roman Empire. You were working with the non-Jewish Gentile Roman authorities who were occupying uh, your land and your people and your community. And so because of that, tax collectors were often ostracized by their fellow Jewish people, by their community members. Um, they were disowned by their friends and family. They were even considered religiously unclean to the extent that they couldn't go to the temple and worship there. They couldn't offer sacrifices. They couldn't even pray in the same spaces or in the same ways as some other people. Which begs the question, if that's the kind of rejection you're going to face for becoming a tax collector, then why would you do it? Why would someone pursue a profession where they're going to be ostracized by their community, disowned by those they know and love, and considered unclean in their society? And the answer is because it was also one of the easiest ways to make money. You see, the tax system back then was open to numerous forms of abuse. This will sound strange to us today, um, but there were actually no set tax rates in the Roman Empire at the time. 
Instead, what the Roman authorities did back then in a system called tax farming is they would bid out the job of tax collector positions to whoever offered them the most money. So let's say a tax collector position came open for bid. The Roman authorities would post it on sort of an ancient job board of sorts, uh, and then they would take applicants who would come in and make them offers. So, you know, the first person might come in and say, I can get you 20,000 denarii of taxes uh, a year. This region, this community, uh, the kind of trade and industry that they have, 20,000 denarii seems pretty reasonable. And they would go out, the next person would come in and say, okay, so that last person said 20,000 denarii, I'll offer you 25,000 denarii. And they would leave, and the next person would come in. So 20,000, 25,000, I'll get you 30,000 denarii, and so on and so forth, until finally someone would make an offer so big that no one else could top them, and then they were the one who got the job. Now, I'm sure you can see how a system like that would lead to some problems, right? Uh, first of all, since tax collectors were always competing for jobs by offering the authorities more and more and more taxes, taxes were constantly going up in the Roman Empire. I mean, it wasn't like the empire was going to say no to more money, right? And so as people were constantly offering more to them to get these positions, what happened is that the people in the middle, everyday citizens, felt the squeeze more and more and more. Related to that, because the tax rate was always changing, as were the collectors, most people had no idea how much the collectors were actually supposed to be collecting. All they had to go on was what the collectors were telling them they owed. But since they didn't know what the collectors had promised to the authorities, they had no way of figuring out whether what the collectors were charging them was actually accurate or not. And so the collectors could kind of tell people whatever they wanted to whether or not that was actually the set rate. And the thing was, the Roman authorities didn't know how much the collectors were collecting either. The only people who actually knew were the collectors themselves. Because those positions were contract positions with little oversight, the authorities didn't actually know what the collectors were telling everyday people. And so what the collectors could do is they could kind of just say whatever they wanted. They could give people whatever figure they decided was best. And so as a result, that's what many tax collectors did. They would collect more than they needed, sometimes way more than they needed, by telling people a different amount than they actually needed to get from them in order to give the authorities what they had promised. And so even though a tax collector might have only promised the authorities 30,000 denarii, they might very well try to collect 35 or even 40,000 denarii. Then what they would do is they would go to the authorities, they would pay what they had promised, and then they would pocket the rest as profit for themselves. So with all that in mind, let's go back to these two details that Luke gives us about Zacchaeus here. First, he tells us he's a chief tax collector. Okay, what that means is that Zacchaeus wasn't just a normal tax collector anymore. Instead, he was apparently so good at tax collection that he'd actually been given an entire team of other tax collectors to work under him. Think about it kind of like a tax collection pyramid or multi-level marketing scheme. At one point, Zacchaeus would have collected taxes himself, but now he had risen up the ranks so high that he could simply coordinate this team of other collectors underneath him and live off their work. <clears throat> and it seemed to be working for him, right? Because, again, as Luke tells us, Zacchaeus was wealthy. And like we talked about, the way that you became wealthy as a tax collector was by over-collecting and then skimming off the top for yourself. And so that's what Zacchaeus and his team of collectors were doing. He had them collecting what they needed to, yes, but also then more on top of that as a kickback, both for them and himself. In short, Zacchaeus desired money. 
And as a tax collector in first century Palestine, he had found the perfect way to get it. But then something strange happens. One day, a traveling teacher, a miracle worker, a rabbi named Jesus comes to town. He's going through Jericho. And we don't know why, Luke doesn't tell us, but suddenly Zacchaeus finds himself desiring something else. All it seems he's ever really wanted is money. He's desired it, he's worked for it, and he's been pretty successful at getting it. But now there's something else he wants, something else he'd like, something else he desires. He wants to see Jesus. Not meet him, mind you. Not interact with him, not talk with him. All he wants is to see Jesus. And again, we don't know why. Luke doesn't tell us. You know, it's possible Zacchaeus had heard some stories about Jesus, about his miracles. He might have heard bits and pieces of his teaching from up north in Galilee. Or maybe he'd heard that Jesus, as we see earlier in chapter 5 in this gospel, that he had a reputation for spending time with sinners and tax collectors like him, something which in a time and culture when most people avoided them like the plague, Jesus did regularly. Whatever it was, Zacchaeus was drawn to Jesus. He was connected to him. He desired some experience of him. And so as Jesus and his disciples walked down Main Street on their way through Jericho, Zacchaeus wanted to see him. Just a glance, just a peek, just a glimpse. That was enough. That's what he wanted. That's what he needed. That's what he desired. But there was a problem. Luke tells us one more detail about Zacchaeus, and this is probably the detail that Zacchaeus is most famous for. He was short. Now, that in and of itself shouldn't actually have been a problem. After all, rich, powerful people are often given places of prominence in social settings, including, at least normally, at the front of a crowd as some dignitary or influential figure is passing by. In other words, once he showed up for Jesus' parade route through Jericho, Zacchaeus should have, in theory, been ushered to the front of the crowd in order to see him. So why wasn't he? Well, Middle Eastern expert and biblical scholar Ken Bailey writes about this in his contextual commentary, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He says this, the scene informs the reader that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus but was unable to do so because of the crowd. Zacchaeus's problem was that he was short and hated. Where he respected, the crowd naturally would have made way for such a rich and powerful person. Middle Eastern culture requires such treatment. But Zacchaeus was a collaborator with the Roman authorities and therefore despised. The collaborator dared not ask the crowd to make way for him and doubtless was afraid even to mix with them. You see, this crowd that Zacchaeus wanted to get to the front of in order to see Jesus were the very same people that he had become rich from. These were the people that he had collected taxes from. These were the people that he had over-collected from. These were the people that he had manipulated and swindled and stolen his great wealth from. And they knew it, and he knew it too. And so he dared not try to force his way through the crowd. Instead, once he realizes that he's not going to get to see Jesus, he's not going to get through the crowd, Zacchaeus did two highly unusual things, at least for a fully grown Middle Eastern man to do. First, he ran, and second, he climbed a tree. 
And these two things are, simply put, something that no Middle Eastern man, either back then or still today, would do. Uh, Again, as Bailey writes, Middle Eastern adults do not run in public if they wish to avoid public shame. Furthermore, powerful rich men do not climb trees at public parades anywhere in the world. Right? That doesn't happen. Um, Zacchaeus knew this only too well, so he ran ahead of the crowd and trying to hide, climbed into a tree with dense foliage, hoping no one would see him. You see, culturally, those two things, running and climbing a tree, would have been considered shameful actions for a fully grown uh, man to engage in. In Middle Eastern culture, um, Middle Eastern culture is often what's called a shame-based culture, meaning that there are certain cultural taboos that you simply do not break because doing so uh, shames not only, well, it can offend others, but it also shames you, and even beyond that, it can shame your entire extended family as well. And so in those cultures, those actions and that shame are avoided at all costs. For instance, when I went to Israel and Palestine back in seminary, we were extensively trained on a few of these things. Uh, One of the things we were told, for instance, was never to touch somebody with our left hand. And the reason is because historically, culturally, that's the hand that people would use to wipe when they went to the bathroom. And so it's considered unclean. And so if you touch somebody else with it, it's considered highly offensive, even just a hand on the shoulder or a pat on the back. Same thing for showing the bottom of your foot to someone. Um, That's considered unclean as well. And so we were told that when we were sitting in a group of people not to cross our legs because doing so inevitably shows the bottom of your foot to someone and we were told that that's actually on about the same level as giving someone the finger here in our culture. You don't do it. It's highly offensive. The point is there are certain things in Middle Eastern culture you avoid. You don't want to offend others, certainly, but you don't want to bring shame on yourself or on your family either. And so two of those things back then and still today would have included running in public and climbing a tree as a fully grown adult. And yet Zacchaeus does both. Once he realizes that he's not going to get this glimpse of Jesus that he wants, that he's not going to get to see him, he takes off. He starts running. And where does he run? Actually, out of town. None of them really explain this, which was frustrating because the nerd in me wanted to know. Uh, But multiple commentators said that there were actually ordinances in Palestine at the time against having sycamore trees within the city limits of any town or city. Um, For whatever reason, there were city bylaws against them. And so the fact that Luke mentions the tree that Zacchaeus climbed was a sycamore fig tree means that he actually ran all the way outside of town in order to get this glimpse of Jesus he wanted. Once he realizes that he wasn't going to be able to get through the crowd to see Jesus, this rich, powerful man takes off running along the back of the crowd. He dodges and weaves past the other people who are still joining, past the stragglers at the end who are making up the end of the line, uh, even further than that, down the main street, past the last row of houses, through the gate, beyond the city wall, a little further than that still until he finds what he's looking for. And then having already committed one shameful act as a fully grown Middle Eastern man, By running in public, he commits another and he climbs a tree. That's how badly Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. That's how much he longed for that glimpse of him. That's how desperate his desire for Jesus had become. He needed it. He yearned for it. He craved it. He knew nothing else would satisfy. It was all he wanted, all he hoped for, all he sought. He made seeing Jesus his one goal, his whole object and aim. His ambition, no matter how silly or shameful he became in the process. 
the question for us as Christians still today is, do we? Do we desire, need, hope for, yearn for, do we want Jesus like that? Because we should. That's actually part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, right? That's part of what it means to be a Christian. That's part of what it means to follow after him and identify ourselves as his people. It means to orient ourselves around him, to center our lives on him, to make him our whole object and aim and desire him more than anything or anyone else. Do we? Do we desire Jesus like that? Do we orient ourselves around him? Do we center our lives, our priorities, our goals, our ambitions on him? Or do we desire other things more? You know, for some of us, like, like it used to be for me, it is a relationship, right? It's another person. We want them, we need them, we desire them more than anything. Or it's even just the thought of a relationship. Just the idea, it becomes an idol. We can never be by ourselves. We can never be single We're always craving that next relationship, that next person. For others of us like Zacchaeus, it's something material. You know, it's a possession. It's it's wealth. It's security. It's making sure that we are able to provide for ourselves and that we have everything that we need no matter what and doing it all on our own power. Something tangible we can touch, grasp, or hold on to. Or maybe it's something more achievement-oriented. You know, it's the job. It's the promotion, the spot on the team, the role in the play, the grade, the GPA. We want to make sure that we're just as accomplished as everyone else, that we're keeping up with the Joneses, that we're keeping up with everyone else's social media profile because their lives all look perfect and we want ours to as well. For still others of us, it's something more ethereal like recognition, reputation, beauty, or affirmation. That's mine. I'm an extrovert. I like to describe myself as a raging extrovert, actually. I get energy from being around other people, but I also get affirmation from it, and that's what I crave. Whatever it is, and from time to time, there's something like that for all of us. When we desire that thing, whatever it is, more than God, which is very easy to slip into, it becomes, in the words of Scripture, an idol, right? That's the definition of idolatry, something else that takes the place of God, something else that steps into the place where our desire should be, first and foremost, for Christ. And when that happens, as Christian believers, we are called to repentance. The Hebrew word and concept for repentance is shuv. It actually describes this idea of a 180-degree turn. You're heading one way, now you're heading the opposite way. And so rather than running after that thing that we desire, it involves running after Christ instead. That's what Zacchaeus did here, right? He was willing to make a fool of himself, willing to look ridiculous, willing even to endure shame in his community, all because of his desire for Jesus. Are we willing to do that? Jesus was. Jesus was willing to do that. We call that the gospel, right? He was willing to go to the cross, as Scripture says, scorning its shame for us, 
to die for us, to forgive us, and to restore our broken relationship with God. As Jesus says here, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's us. We're the lost. And yet Christ came for us. He desired us, and so he did what it took to get us. He made us his whole goal, his ambition, his entire object and aim. That's how much Christ loved us. That's how much we mattered to him. That's how much he desired us. He desired us so much that he was willing to condescend from glory, from heaven here, to be with us, to be present with us to go to the cross, to die for us, to rise so that we might have new life, and then as we are celebrating this week, to ascend to glory and take a seat at the right hand of his Father. He did that for us. That's how much he desired us. And that's how much we are called to desire him as well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we are overwhelmed by your grace. Lord, you would have been entirely just and right if you had left us in our sin because that was our decision to rebel against you, to turn away and walk away from you. And yet you desired us so much that you sent your one and only Son here to earth. He lived among us, sacrificed himself for us, and rose to new life so that we could have an experience that new life too. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the grace that we receive through him. Thank you for your gospel. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.